Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had. And I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design, still my favorite is the built structure and interiors and years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listened to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Ian Thompson from the Ed Institute. Now, Ian is a educator and probably one of the most fascinating creatives I've ever spoken to in the sense of his passion and his energy about educating other people in design thinking. I think from the first conversation, we just hit it off, and this was years ago, we hit it off. And we just suddenly went down rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole about education and not just the, but the education of design thinking and how creatives think and where it takes them. This has taken Ian from being a teacher um, to his own company, which he's in partnership with a couple of other guys. And they go around and they train teachers and train students in design thinking. I hope I've got that right. 
He was also nominated for the ACT um, school leader in uh, a few years back, like 2018, I think it was, um, and has received some other awards in his professional career. And he's waiting, he's waiting for his doctorate <laughs> certificate to arrive in the mail. The work is done. It's the paperwork that's just got to be followed up. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Adrian, and hello to everyone out there as well. Yeah, it's going to be cool, man. Design thinking is something that's so close to my heart and how we problem solve and how we move forward with problem solving, of course, is really close to my heart. It actually probably beyond anything is my only purpose that I really excel in in life is how do, how do you think your way out of a problem um, or get yourself into another one by thinking inaccurately <laughs> in a problem? Um, Perfect. Let, <laughs> Let's kick off with, tell us about you as like a, you know, maybe a four or five year old and what kind of a child you were and what you were pulling apart and putting together and where this design, uh, I suppose, passion was born from. Yeah, so I was, and yeah, thanks again for having me. This is going to be fantastic. Um, I was I was really lucky. I had a really interesting, eclectic childhood. So uh, my parents... My dad was a, a kindy teacher back in the 80s. In, in, and this is was pretty unique for, I think it was the only male kind, kindy teacher in the ACT, sorry, prep teacher, foundation yep. teacher in the ACT at the time. And my mother was a doctor. And as well as being exposed to education and, and healthcare around the dinner table, uh, we got to do some pretty cool stuff. So we lived on Christmas Island for about um, a year and that was amazing. So that was a, a, a huge change for, uh, for me as a young person. And... I guess my parents always exposed me to opportunity and, and challenge and they never shied away from, you know, what the world really looked like, which I think I, I at the time didn't really understand, but looking back, I really, I really value that. Um, and I think they were also very creative, but not in the traditional sense. I think when you're the one of only two doctors on the island and you're 900 kilometres away from a hospital, you get creative, right? And my mum <laughs> used to tell us stories about how she had to be creative as a, a as a health professional. And my dad is a kindy teacher, you know, um, and he was he then became a stay at home dad before it was almost a thing. He he kind he wrote a book actually about being a, a stay at home dad, which which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, like that that idea of creativity and flexibility and agility and all those things were kind of part of my my childhood. Um, one of four kids with, you know, we had a few other, often had other people staying with us as well. It was a busy, fun household with parents who were really passionate and, and busy as well. And and I guess, yeah, I was always given the opportunity to try different things. Um, and I, I'm, yeah, really grateful for that. I think I, <laughs> they also encouraged me not to see obstacles as problems, but as opportunities. And I even even to use those things as superpowers, right? So I was I, because I'm, I'm red, green, colorblind. I think we've talked about this before. Yeah. And the only the only competition or the only thing I ever won at school was I won a coloring competition for originality. But it was because I did all the colors wrong. So they thought that I was being this. They thought I was this avant garde, you know, artistic genius. And and my parents were like, um. I think he is. He's actually just colorblind. Uh, but they, but I remember even then, Mum saying to me, you know, because I was a bit disheartened by the fact that I'd won something by accident. And you know, the, I remember Mum saying to me, "That's all right. Like, it's who you are. You, you're unique. Don't worry yeah. about it. Don't shy away from it. Use it." Right. Um, so yeah, and then I think growing up, travel was a big part of us and our lives. And my parents made the mistake of addicting me to travel pretty early, and 
So got to travel. I traveled a lot as both as a young person as a young, and a young adult. And that really, I think, impacted my my view of design and opportunity as well. So I, I kind of, I kind of came, I never wanted to be a teacher because my dad was a teacher, right? So it's like right, the one yeah. thing you never want to do as a young person, particularly as an adolescent, is do anything remotely close to what your parents have done. And I kind of came to teaching by accident. Um, I started off in, in TV and film um, and I, uh, yeah, my first love is, is, is film and, and that was sort of where I'd started and then I sort of came to teaching by accident and got, got hooked pretty quickly. I, um, I think that it's amazing that uh, your wife is a doctor and um, I know, right? <laughs> and you're an educator. <laughs> the apple I've didn't got, fall yeah, very far from the tree, mate. We could we could do some some analysis of that, but we probably better not. It might it might end up. I might not like the answer, but yeah, no. And and again, like I hope that our, we have a daughter now, and I hope that she gets to hear about education and healthcare around the dinner table too. You know, um, yeah. And I learned so much from my wife about that too. Like I'm still learning about design. From there's nothing more complicated intractable there's nowhere where you need design more than healthcare i don't think yeah right um, and that's yeah. one of the great things our parent company think place do a lot of work in the health space and that's why because you know i mean we often say in teaching people can't learn if they're not healthy and that's both physically mentally socially emotionally all those things if you're not healthy you can't you can't learn I think, the studies that, that show that so yeah i think that's a really amazing um Key point takeaway is people can't learn if they're not healthy. And so yeah. what's the environment? What's the, um, you know, the, the, the self-environment, all those things that are going to support people to be learners. I have this uh, conversation with my daughter the other day. Uh, she was saying about what the teacher hadn't done. And I said to her, well, well, hold on a second. I said, you're, you're the student. It's your responsibility to be the learner. It's yeah, not the teacher's right. responsibility to, it is their, their job to teach you, but they can't teach you if you're not the learner. You've got to stand Absolutely. up and become the learner here. And when you're saying about the, that sort of um, thing, if they're in a good environment, they're, they're healthy, their mind's healthy, they're active, they're, all these things, then they have all the tools to be a great learner. Um, and yeah, the style might not match. They still have all yeah. the great tools to be a learner. Um, I think and something else you were saying there about, sorry, about being colorblind <laughs> is it at some point you you were told you were because you wouldn't know you were. At some That's point, right. somebody tested you and said, "Oh, well, actually, you're colorblind." With that, from before. Not before, probably, but from that point on, you became an adapter and mm -hmm. you adapted knowing that you had this um, this gift of, and, and what that did was whilst you might not see red-green, it meant that you went, okay, how do I adapt to my situations? What am I not seeing and observing in a whole different way? And I've got another mate who is a very successful, um, uh, he produces frying pans of all things, but highly innovative. He has a bunch of patents to his name. He's colorblind. Um, you know, he'll go, if you're going out somewhere, go, what 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 colors am I wearing here? Because it's kind of gray and gray. And yeah. <laughs> But I know yeah. that's a, a, a blue gray where that one might be a green gray or something like that, but he can mix it up. And but such an adapter 
an adapter yeah. and he had to learn to be with people because of it, much like you, so that you could rely on them if it was needed. Um, it's a really interesting thing when you're adapting. And I think you're right. There's this in my in my experience in life, there's always two sides to a coin, right? So that challenge of color blindness means that my wardrobe is different shades and textures rather than colors. So it's a mm-hmm. lot of blue, gray, and black, but it's all textures, it's shades, it's all you know, different hues, which I love. So I love fashion. And mm-hmm. um, I pitched when I was at university, I pitched the idea of, of, a, of a colorblind clothing line, you know, which was all you know, four let's say four core colors at each each season, but it, yep. it made its mark through texture and tone. And and I think, but the flip side to it is, as a colorblind person, I, I tend to have I have really good uh, distance vision, and I can tell the difference. Subtle differences in tone and hue are really apparent to me um, because I have to be right because my eyes yeah. are working harder, I guess. Um, and so, it, it, in a lot of ways, I love it. I, I often joke with my friends when they tease me about it. I say that it's like you know, it's actually I've adapted on the next version of humanity, right? Like you know, this is this is going to be this is you know, color is not that important anymore. But what is important is distance vision and and night vision and you know, tone and hue and all these things. So I joke with them that I'm actually like X Men. They they haven't quite you know jumped on with that and they don't they don't appreciate that just yet but I, th- I think and I say this to my students right like there's always a flip side to any coin you know and I think that goes both ways yep. if you're great at something there's a flip side to that too um yep. but if, if you have a challenge there's often an opportunity there too and um that sounds cliche but you, time and time again in the work we do we, we see the opportunity in the challenge as well um, well it's a it's a lens that you put on the world that's the Absolutely. other thing it's a lens that you put on the world because you're always looking for the opportunity um, yeah. it, within every challenge, and right. people go, oh, "Well, you think differently." Yeah, I adapt. I adapt to yeah. what what's happening there. Um, yeah, I think that that would have also, with your you know first love being film, and again the tone and hue of something is uh, really amazing. On the podcast, I've got a guy called Richard Dejetsky, and he mm-hmm. when he studied architecture, he studied a lot of film was one of the methods they taught architecture via at uh, the university he went to in England. And he was saying to me, you know, like it really trained us to look at light. Yeah. Because film's all about light. It doesn't work without That's all it. it is. Exactly <laughs> yes. right. Yeah. yeah. If you don't have light, film's really tough. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And again, <laughs> and he's a dyslexic like me and we were talking through things and he's like, yeah, like, but from looking at light, and how it falls across a building. I learned construction, I learned form, I learned shape, I learned all these different things. And then you go saying, oh, well, distance and um, that, that, again, how the tonal value tells you a story. And when you can do that, yeah, you're honed in. You're honed in. And yeah. film, film's all about that. And I think it also taught me, oh, for sure, it taught me a lot about that structure, that narrative stuff too. So you know, so much of education is a journey and understanding that hero's journey and that narrative framework and understanding the ability of how to tell a story and why story is important, I still use in my work every day. It didn't matter if I was working with, you know, uh, really 
should we say, educate uh, young men for whom education not been successful, which how it used to be put. I used to do a lot of work in that space. I think that was partly because well, I was young men who, for whom for whom education has not been successful, successful is the is the appropriate term. But you know how I'm talking about. That's talking, a big I'm people. About, are, that's a big room of people, man. Yeah, yeah, right. It's me, it's me and you thirty years ago, <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. and uh, I did a lot of work in that space. And I think partly because I understood that we need to be healthy to learn, that really impacted me. So I often found myself working with you know, young people on the margins. But mm-hmm. I think I also really understood that everybody has that journey and that that hero's journey applies to every student. And if you can you can sort of help young people see themselves as the hero in that journey uh, through scaffolding their education around them and giving them some, some opportunity, um, you, you can do a lot. But I think probably even more importantly, a lot of the work I gravitated towards was with doing work with teachers because... If there's a group of people who can't work well if they're not healthy, teachers are exactly the same, right? Yeah. Like it can be a really tough profession and I'm super passionate about mentoring. The only reason I stayed in education was because I had good mentors. I'm going to be really honest about that. Um, <laughs> I was really lucky with the mentors that I had, so I'm really passionate about that mentoring, even if it's not formal, even if it's sort of, yeah. uh, you know, people believing in teachers um, mm-hmm. because they need to know that they're in that hero's journey too. Um, and they're kind of, you know, the hero in their journey as well. And that, that I look back on my early 20s and what I learned about narrative and, and story and all those things and, and design, I guess. Um, and that always impacted me throughout my career. And um, I think it, it definitely still does. Yeah, I, I, I love that whole thing around how, you know, the glue that stuck you there was actually how do you how do you get teachers or how do you work with teachers to actually get them to see it from the design thinking side of the this thing and then that again empowers the student to take that on with design and look you know people go oh you know somebody's so creative and I go huh yeah they are everybody's creative trust me just put them in the right, right. situation they'll get creative there's no yeah, doubt about totally that. Yeah, totally <laughs> it, it, it's just finding the right situation for them. It's we often see creatives because of that. We we look out into the world and we see artists, yeah. and we go, "They're so creative," and that's just the artists. That's how their creativity's manifested, and that's how they show it. Where, as I say, everybody's creative. And as an educator, you know, you're not in a room necessarily with one person, you're in a room with multiple people. And then you go back to what you were just saying about the hero's journey. And it's finding that, or tell me how you find that, in a diverse group of people who, a lot of them don't see themselves as creative because they're not artistic. Yeah, that's right. And our education system has made that harder because we have art as a subject, right? And we have English as a subject. And we, because we split learning into subjects, um, in that it's, it's a little bit archaic and a little bit old. Like, it's useful, and I understand pragmatically why we need to do it for HR and all those things, but that just makes it harder. Um, I think one of the things that really impacted me when I was at university uh, was there was this theory, Gardner's multiple intelligences. Now, it's a little bit dated now. And there's been some, you know, some, I what guess, was it contention called? around it, it. But Gardner's? I still think the idea of Gardner's multiple intelligences. Okay. Yep. Gardner, cool. as you just think of Gardner's and gardening. Yep. And what Gardner said was, and I'm paraphrasing here, and, you know, um, I, I can give you some links to some 
do some research around it. But essentially what Gardner said was that we all engage with education through a different lens or a different way. And some people do it through a natural sense. And, you know, it might be someone who's connected with nature. It might be someone who connects with their learning um, in a physical sense or, or kinesthetic sense. So they're the young people who tend to be better at things like PE or dance and those things. Um, we might connect in a visual way, which means, you know, they're the people who see things, can interpret what they see. And there's a bunch of these intelligences, right? And I think more than the theory itself, what that opened me up to was that understanding of, you know, in a room of 30 young people um, or now in the work I do in you know, hundreds of, of, yeah. of, of people, is there's going to be all of us come to, to the opportunity with different strengths and all of those things are useful. And if we can find ways to connect with people that tap into as many of those as possible. Now, I used to set myself a challenge where I used to try and do, <laughs> you know, it was like the holy grail. Could you do a lesson which connected with all the intelligences? I don't think you can. I never did. I'm sure people out there have. Um, uh, but even if we move beyond that, that research and we think about that in terms of the individual student, and one of the real challenges for educators now is that they're asked to, you know, connect with 30 young people in a room, all have different needs. We have a much greater understanding of the social, emotional needs and mental cognitive needs of young people now. But that's a blessing and a curse because you you look at, I used to get intimidated by it. I'd look out this sea of faces and think, man, how do I reach all of you? And and what I what I learned pretty quickly was the best way to reach a classroom was to um, give them the tools for them to reach themselves. And I think that is a lot of the work we do. So that's kind of evolved through things like design thinking. I mean, the beauty of design thinking is that we're, it's a very personal, individual experience. So you can have a room of 30 kids doing design thinking, prototyping their own ideas, doing it in an ethical way. That's going to look different for all of them, but that's okay. That's the beauty of it is the diversity. And I think one of the challenges for education has been understanding that we need to, you know, I guess in some ways we need to account for things like tests and exams and scaling and all that stuff because that's the world we live in but at the same time we want to create an educational environment which gets young people to connect as individuals and my real passion is finding paths to do that whether it's for teachers or for young people or even out in the community right even in you know we do work with organizations because most organizations are trying to educate each other or themselves right mm. so Mm. education people think of education as this silo just like healthcare it's this thing that exists out on its own but all of us are learning all the time and it doesn't matter whether you're part of an architecture firm or you're part of a uh, you know like you a design experience or yeah. you're working in you know government or non-government you're going to be teaching or learning you know and so understanding more about uh, what's called pedagogy, which is the art of teaching. Mm -hmm. If you can understand more about pedagogy, you're going to be much better about it. So we've been, you know, it's interesting the work that we do because I thought it would be all teachers and young people, but it's not. You know, we we do work all over the spectrum because people are starting to understand more and more that education is a bit of a silver bullet. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it can be. If anything, if anything could change, and I believe this, if anything could change this planet, and that's a bit of a West Wing quote um, for those uh, listeners out there who might be fans, but if anything could be a silver bullet, it could be education. Um, I think it is the silver bullet. I don't think of anything. Uh, yeah, there right? is no other. There is no other. I think it's if we meet we human kind of needs. Yeah, if we meet human needs um, as just in shelter, air, water, you know, food, yeah. um, 
if we meet those, the next thing that takes us into being more human is, is education and understanding others and accepting others. And I mean, we form rules of society, those kinds of things. However, our only way forward is, is for more people to understand a broader spectrum of things. And yeah. I, I was reading about a guy, a local guy as well, who must get on the podcast, a guy called Lou Brennan. He's an artist, but he also worked in Noosa Council for many years. Um, amazing guy. And I've had mm. chats with him and all the rest. And he was saying about one of the things that uh, cements like the economy and space of a, a, of a town is to have an education of civilization is to have an educational facility. That's and right. Yeah. He made he made sure Noosa ended up with that, with the university, etc. Uh it's yeah, it's key to the forming of community and the forming of right down to the financial forming of it. Um in every aspect, education's one of the key pillars. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, I think if you look through history, you know doesn't matter what culture or an educational space where people gather mm -hmm. as well as a religious space and some other spaces. Yep. But you're exactly right from a, you know, that ethnographic point of view, almost, it's almost, you know, that sort of, yeah, it's fascinating. Like that it people is, will eh? gather around that and healthcare as well. And, you know, some yep. of these things that people, you know, will collectivize around because I think we inherently know that to learn is to grow. Um, but that we don't learn well in isolation, and that was the challenge with COVID, right? Oh, was yeah. how do yeah. we how do how do how do we break through that that barrier of of isolation? And fascinating work came out of that. You, you're absolutely right. I think we've got the next ten years, or maybe maybe fifty years, we're going to have a a blip of the COVID isolation mm. blip. It's going to follow a certain group of people right through their whole lives. And, I totally agree with you. My yeah. daughter was born in, in yeah. April 2020, right? So she was born right, right on the end of COVID. Yep. And I often wonder what impact that's going to have. I mean, I'm curious as, you know, someone who's just naturally curious, but I'm also like a little bit keeping an eye out. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. I wonder if she's going to have a socialization, all those yeah, things. I, like... Exactly. Like, so she thinks Zoom, she'll, she'll, she'll hear me on Zoom. She'll totter in in a minute because she assumes yep. Zoom is for her. So when I she grew it. up, when she was born, it FaceTime, was... Zoom, all those things were people calling to talk to her because they couldn't come and see her, right? So it was family and friends all over the world and all even, even in the next suburb who couldn't come and visit would Zoom in and FaceTime us. So she assumed, and she's been doing this, she often so comes into her, meetings. It's, it's just a, it's a communication tool. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. She's... And, I, I, yeah, I'm fascinated. You're absolutely right. There's going to be this group of people. Yeah. That is going to follow through, and as a researcher, I'm really curious about that. Like, well, I, how is that going to impact education? Good or bad? Uh, Maybe we, they're going to bring some superpowers, right? Well, the thing I was about to say, the thing that will come out of it, there will be good, there will be bad. The, yeah. the thing that will come out of it is something will be a superpower that comes from it, and there'll be the so, ones who it broke, and there'll be the ones who that it gave them a platform to step off much higher than they mm -hmm. ever imagined, and that's the nature of all adversity. You know, like Absolutely. some people don't make it through, some people do. But I think that it's really fascinating when you're saying that. Dot, like, she just assumes that's part of life. Yeah. So she's right. natively learnt that that's a, a way of communicating. Yeah. Um, whereas, I mean, for most of the population, I think they discovered it. Um, and then there was a lot of people that probably went, um, 
I wish this wasn't a way of life because <laughs> yeah, now, absolutely. now I'm, um, I'm available. Yeah. And I was thinking about that thing with community just the other morning, I got up and did a, uh, a thing with Matthew McConaughey where he talked about his green light book and offered a coaching program anyway, whatever it was, it was, he connected 2.4 million people on mm. Tony Robbins's platform, but he, connected 2.4 million people around the world in yeah. a single hour or it was five hours long but started him here at 3 a.m in the morning and in that single hour he was that's how many people were engaged in watching and registered mm. registered and, and it's go, synchronous and asynchronous right like yeah you know in person virtual and all those things and there's there's blessings and, and curses for all those things right and I think one of the great things about you know the the, the virtual teaching experience is it it took away some of the I guess some of the barriers that can exist mm -hmm. in terms of the in person thing for young people who might have social anxieties or challenges with the classroom experience. Uh, for example, I know my nephew who his mother um, she'd had long term health issues and so he'd often missed the school before. He th like he smashed it. Like in COVID, he was like, nah, I've, I've, I've lived the not being able to go to school before. So he was yeah. all over it. And his level of resilience because of his situation, but also because of his understanding was really intuitively high. So mm. he dominated. In, mm. <laughs> he did, his grades went up during COVID. Mm. Um, That's and a I guy to employ who worked from home. Right. <laughs> and this is it. But one of the things we, we found, and this is one of the things I found in the research, which was really fascinating, was that, when we talk about design thinking, the people who inherently engage with design thinking tend to be young people who have had to develop some form of resilience, empathy, and um, ideation skill already. Now, the young people who struggled with it, and this blew me away, were the traditional gifted students. Mm -hmm. So that was really, really interesting for me. In fact, I didn't expect it, and it's probably more study that needs to happen because we found kids who traditionally don't engage in the classroom experience. When you said to them, there's no failure, it's just ideation. So when, you, when, when you're going to come up with your idea to tackle this problem, you might go through 30 or 40 of them, and that's okay. When we gave them that freedom um, and when we, we helped the teachers give them that freedom, these young people who are actually quite resilient because of their home life or because of their um, their challenges that they mm -hmm. have or because of their, their context or situation, those that know what it means to get up when they face adversity and those that know what it means to be uh, have a bit of grit um, did exceptionally well. And those that were good at playing the game, which is right answer, there's a path to get there and we have to tick the box, which we all know is not life, right? There's very few circumstances in life where there's a linear path and a right answer, but education often pushes young people towards it. It's that. often a way to get through something. Right. And these people who are good at getting through it would freak out and they'd say to their teacher, is this right? And the teacher would say, it's your prototype. Yeah. I don't know. You know, is it right? You tell me. And they kind of, you could see the fuses popping. Um, and to be fair, some of the, and like that's not, good or bad, but it's just interesting. And it, it, I think a lot of the work, I started using design thinking in school. It probably sort of backpacks off that mentor thing I was saying. So mm. I was really lucky that I had mentors in my life as an educator who said, Ian, that's okay, but, you you know, let, let, let's let keep this within the bounds of what's reasonable. Um, 
<laughs> so, you know, Michael Sisley, Steve Gunnell, I'm going to shout them out because they're awesome. These these mentors, I remember once I was, I think, second year, third year teacher, and I was teaching math. I'm not a mathematician. It's my, it's not my super. could do a backflip on a bike. He was 13, he could do a backflip. I was like, what a cool way to teach parabolas because I don't know how to teach parabolas. So I said, I'm going to film you with my high-speed camera. Yep. I'm going to film you doing a backflip. I'm going to put it in slow motion and that is going to make a natural, it's probably not even a parallel. The listeners are going to be like, this is not a parabola, it's something else. But it's going to make a natural curve as he does Absolutely. a backflip. Absolutely, yep. As he does the backflip, it's going to do a, a natural curve that I'm going to be able to highlight on the screen and show young people how it works. And I did the same with a golf swing. I, 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 you know, I used to use cameras and video stuff yep. all the time. My principal at the time finds out about this. He's like, Ian, you can't be filming a kid doing that. Oh, H&S. Not, on, that. not like, on school grounds, Ian. Exactly. <laughs> he was like, you know, but what he was great, instead of saying no, he said, he said, what if, right? So, you know, Stephen, he became a great mentor of mine. He said, I'm not going to tell you no, I'm going to tell you what if. I'm going to tell you how about. You know, let's look at this differently. Yeah. So he kind of exposed me to an early design thinking experience and he – what that meant was he said, bring, he said, he used to say to me, you know, bring, and, and Michael, my, my, my first year teacher mentor was the same. When I was a first year teacher. He was so good at helping me bring my passion into the classroom. And I think that applies for all of us. Bring your passion into your workplace. Um, and he, he was like, do it, but just do it in a way that's you know, ethical and, yeah. and protective and not going to mean you're going to lose your job. Um, and <laughs> That really sort of, I guess, that ability to be free and creative was given to me by good mentors, um, but also they kept me healthy. I remember my mentor in my first year of teaching, he he lived quite near the school. I was in there on a Saturday marking, as you do, you know. He called me up. He said, Ian, I can see that you're in at school. I can see your car's there. I've turned the alarm on at the school. You've got two minutes to get out get and out. go home. And I was like, what? I've just got to finish. He was like, minute 45, boop, and hung up. So he turned the alarm on. He knew I didn't know how to turn the alarm on or off. And so I had that long to get out of there and get back and have get back into my weekend. But um, this idea <laughs> of community and education, of, 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 of really supporting our educators, that, that, that existed for me from the start. And um, what that meant was when... I was able to bring this film stuff and do creative stuff. And that kind of got me connected to the, how that connected me to how I discovered design thinking. Mm -hmm. So um, it was really, and at the time, the University of Canberra were building this thing called the Inspire Centre. And it was in combination, what a great name, right? Inspire Centre. Isn't it? Yeah. Isn't that a cool name? I, I just picked up my pen to write that down. Yeah, right. Like, and so the Inspire Centre was a combined project between the University of Canberra and the ACT Education Department. And they did something really clever. They put a bunch on the top floor. They put a bunch of creatives. So there was a person up there who did live scribing, which is that live, you know, cartooning. There was someone. Oh, yeah, who did, sure. Like, yeah, like yeah, as yeah. somebody's talking there. Like, Gavin was amazing. I, I met Amber, who was a, or she did augmented reality and 3D reality. She was working yeah. out there. These amazing researchers. But what they did is rather than choosing one teacher from the education department and putting them in there, they got five teachers to work a day a week which was brilliant because what it meant, and that's always stuck with me as a great way to work. What it meant was that we all, rather than having one person in there working with teachers, you had these five teachers with really diverse backgrounds. So I was passionate about video. Um, there was colleagues in there who were passionate about IT stuff or some of them were just passionate about teachers. 
You know what I mean? You didn't yeah. have to be a tech expert to be part yeah. of an Inspire Associate. So I became an Inspire Associate, um, and this is back in 2000, oh, 20 years oh. ago plus. <laughs> uh, I won't tell you how long ago. <laughs> but it was really forward thinking. when it was new. <laughs> back when it was new. And I met Rob Fitzgerald, who, who ran this. He, he was kind of the university and uh, professor, and he was a real proponent for design thinking. And he, he, taught, he told me, he, I learned from these experts about design thinking. I, I think I intuitively understood the experience of design thinking as a filmmaker, but this mm-hmm. is where I learned it. And I learned the tools and, the, and it just it blew my mind. Where you formalised it as such. Absolutely. And, and, and divided and I was it like, into pieces. You don't need a fancy camera. You know, you don't need fancy equipment. You don't. You can teach design, and this was a part of my thesis was the was the contention that you can teach you can teach design and technology without electricity, um, and that just blew my mind. So then I started taking this back to schools and and working with. I was naturally gravitated towards the young people who had these health challenges, often social emotional challenges. That was a lot of the work I was doing. So but more like likely the mental health challenges, yeah, as opposed yeah, to like anxieties ACT, and stuff. Absolutely, and, yeah. yeah. It was called it was called pastoral care, which sounds religious, but it wasn't. It was I was responsible. So I had this really great job. I was half responsible for the pastoral care of the high school and half responsible for the technology, which is a really weird myth. Um, but it like it was. I was I gravitated towards that that idea because I'd understood I think from an early age and 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 from my partner and those sort of things that you needed to be healthy to learn, um, and I understood design thinking and this became this just weapon in my toolbox and we would do amazing things so by accident I sort of found this thing and then I would find myself spruiking design at you know at, at conferences and at everything. And, at everything, because <laughs> once you once you understand that you can design and that design is limitless and that it doesn't have design, if you, if you give design really good scaffold, but don't mm-hmm. give it too much structure. That's mm-hmm. so I, I kind of went too far the other way. So I do it too structured, and the kids would get frustrated and be like, "Sir, you, you're forcing our hand." And be like, "You're absolutely right." And then I'd give them free reign, and they'd come up mm-hmm. with nothing. And I was like, "Okay, right. There's a middle ground here. We need to provide some scaffolds." And so. Um, I was working with uh, these young people in schools doing this and then I was working with this great uh, one of my team. So she was she decided she wanted to do design thinking with her, like her cooking class. I was like, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. you're awesome. Let's do it. I completely support you to do that. She did this great project called Project Yum, which is where the kids using design thinking came up with a prototype for all these edible food in the playground because we had issues with students not coming to school having had breakfast, right? So they planted all these edible foods throughout the playground. So kids could just walk up and eat anytime yeah, right. in the playground. And this they came to this idea through design thinking. Um, and we kind of, her and I had worked together on this on this project, um, but she really led it. And ACT Health heard about this and were like, wait, there's something in this. So they kind of came into us and said, can we scale this up? We said, sure, but we work at a school and we might need some support to do this. And um, <laughs> I was working at the university as well, teaching teachers. So I was pretty busy. And we found this, uh, I kind of heard about Think Place and Think Place are a, a, this, this global design um, design firm that do a lot of work um, in with NGOs. And, and they basically do a lot of work, I said, in the healthcare system, basically helping people solve these intractable problems. Think Place started in a, in a little office in the middle of Canberra and now has offices. They have offices in you know, Senegal and, and New Zealand, wow. Singapore, London, all over Australia. They've become this. You should get, actually, you should get John Body on the podcast, the founder. He's amazing. Um, talk about, if you want to talk to people about scale and about 
yeah, I'm doing something yeah. passionate about. Get John Body on. He's amazing. Um, and we worked with them to create this design thinking curriculum, right? And so we thought we can scale this up. So we did this design thinking curriculum and they rolled it out across schools, across Canberra. We discovered you could do it in a bunch of subjects. So you could do it in PE, you could do it in you could do it in cooking or technology. Was there any subject you can't do it in? Probably not. I think maths, maths, maths was a struggle, chemistry. not because not because of we they were doing it in sciences. The challenge was more the regulation of the curriculum made it harder in, in, in right. some subjects. And I don't say that disparagingly. I just oh, say it in reality. The reality yeah. is that, you know, the system we live within really values literacy and numeracy, and I think that's that, that's okay. But we were talking luckily, about Luckily, luckily yeah. it does. <laughs> not luckily for me. Not luckily for me. Oh, it's been a struggle for but, me um, as well, but I, but I also go... Oh, um, I hear you, I hear you brother. I without hear you, it. Yeah. Um, without it, but, like, uh, what would we have? Yeah. Right. And and so, but I, we were also proponents for, you know, you know, empathy and and mm-hmm. I, you know, creativity and these skills. But so this won some awards, it won a good design award, it won some international design awards. And I guess I was talking to Think Place about about this stuff and I was doing my study. I started doing my doctorate using this stuff. And we kind of thought, well, there's something in this design and education, right? If anything could that could could benefit from design thinking its education and think place to their credit said well you know we could just employ you or we could help you do a startup and Darren my business partner um, he's one of the founder he's one of the, the he's the chief ethicist at think place get him on as well Darren is his job is a chief ethicist of a design firm that works with NGOs amazing amazing one of the smartest people I've met in real life um, and so him and I, and I had another colleague, Ben, who he, he did a lot of work. Um, he, he had his MBA. He really understood the business of schools. Like right. I came, came from kindergarten, yep. a phenomenal educator, but then understood that for schools to be successful, they need to thrive as organisations, right? Because so much of education now is in that organisational structure. Um, as, do you mean I, as in um, obviously like community as well yeah. as like financially as well, well as? Yeah. Like I mean, right the school across we're the board. At, absolutely. A school I was at had a multi-million dollar budget, right? And so mm-hmm. if you're not managing that well, he was managing that brilliantly. One of the reasons the school was so successful is because he understood that that, that creativity of using numbers, yeah. uh, but yeah. also understanding young people. But he came from early childhood. And so the three of us kind of got together and were scheming and percolating and, and the Ed Institute kind of came out of that. And so we're really lucky we have this parent company and what I love about Think Place is their entire ethos is based around the UN sustainability goals. So whenever they take a job, if it doesn't come within or doesn't align or isn't sitting in some way under the UN sustainability goals, and I get John, get John to talk about this more because he, he's a genius in design, but they won't take it on. So look, some of the best users of design thinking are gambling companies, right? <laughs> like, And so design can be used for... I don't want to say good and evil, but can be used for different expressions, just like anything, like any piece of magic. Um, and so the N Institute came out of out of that, and and we've been really lucky to have that support of that um, parent company because as well as getting to collaborate on really cool jobs together, they really kept us aligned to that UN sustainability goals. Obviously, the ones that really impact us are the ones around education, but it means that we don't just work with teachers. You know, at the moment, we've just finished and work with the Aged Care Commission because they yeah. want to teach their employees about the new uh, after the Aged Care Royal Commission. That's important work. And so education and design plays a huge part 
in 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 that work too. And and I think if I could say anything to your audience out there, it's that design is a crucial part of most things, you know. And one of the things I say to designers when I meet them, people, and I'm really lucky to get to 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 often meet you know wonderful designers, is that yeah. you have this toolkit, you have this this tool this toolbox that most people need right they just may not know they need it and you may not know they need it but most people need to know need to know how to design doesn't matter what your job is or where you are i was about to say that it 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 doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing um and whether it's a job or whether it's life yeah absolutely design is either going to uh control you or free you and your ability to actually modify it or to design your way around it, or you design your way into it, um, it's just critical. And and that could be just process. Like every, yep. I have this thing where I say everything, everything in the world was either created by nature or by yes. humans. Absolutely. There's no other people that, there's no other thing that got involved. And exactly. that's when you realize how poorly humans have done their job in so many ways and how much scope there is. Just look back into nature. Yeah. Oh, look, I, one of our, we just did a job, uh, a job is a wrong word. We just were lucky enough to partner with, um, we worked with 200 year nine students on Valentine's Day, Adrian. Think about yeah. that. <laughs> 15 year olds on Valentine's Day. And we had two days with them. And we stood up the front, and I remember standing at the front and just going, 215-year-olds on Valentine's Day. Yeah. What are they thinking not, about? <laughs> right. It is not this these guys up the front. But we, we tackled biodiversity with them because we that's a real challenge for this mm-hmm. this generation mm-hmm. is biodiversity. Um, and I was startled by the, I guess, the, you know, how, how big a difference, you know, biodiversity is going to make to this planet um, and what a challenge it is. But they, the natural world, right? And the yep. prototypes they came up with at the end of the two days, we have taken some of them, we're going to take some of them to government, to industry, brilliant stuff, you know. Um, and I'm forever, I'm, this always happens to me. I always, I, whenever I work with young people, I always, I, I never, my expectation never meets their capability. And I know this and I still don't do oh, it. Let's right. talk about that too, yeah. Yeah. Look, yeah. I've been fascinated throughout my career to see if I throw throw the hat or throw the expectation just a little bit higher, the yeah. young people will rise to meet that. Yeah. If, I, if I let them, if I get out of their way, if I get out of their way. That's, that's um, one of the big things is um, you know, giving people enough rules and framework for them yes. to be able to move forward and then letting them create their own rules and framework as they go. Uh, and that's design thinking again. And yeah. then watch them jump over the processes and yeah, approach it from the other way. But young people do it more often than than older people. Uh, there's a, yeah. a guy I know who's um, on the podcast, Russ Stevens. He's a coach, coaches yeah. builders and in coaching builders. He says to me, you know, the builder who is like late 20s, early 30s will follow our system and they'll stick to the to the points in our system and then get creative within those. Yeah. The builder who's in their 50s or 60s tends to get caught behind their story and not engage the system as like a map, you know, like 
we give you a map to drive down the road or Google does these days to drive down the road and it empowers us to see everything that's out there. Yeah. It's whether we're watching the screen and the, you know, the blue line mm-hmm. or whether what we're watching is what's happening out there because it can communicate to us and all the other things. I look at it and I go, I'll often put the maps on. Say I was coming to your place. I would put the map on only because mm. I'm likely to speed. Yeah. <laughs> or if you're like me, you're likely to take a diversion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm likely to see something interesting and, and, and hook left. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, totally, yeah. And what it does is it um, it just gives me a process to follow. And also I love the map because the map gives me a time at the start and it says, you know, it's going to take you 22 minutes. So I go, can that be 18 that's yes. part of the yeah. game. Can can <laughs> eighteen? Yeah, we Gamify do a lot of gamification stuff. We do a lot of gamification, and maybe that's a separate episode. But one of the people we work, Think Place has an in-house gamification expert, Kirsten. Oh, right. She worked with us on the original curriculum, and I love working with Kirsten because get her on the podcast too. She's uh-huh. a, her, her her PhD was in gamification, and we did some cool stuff with with teachers and students in gamification. But I, I, I totally agree with you because. My wife and I actually in in the like in my thesis, you know, you did a bit at the start with the give the thank yous. Yeah. And I thanked her for being my fellow map maker, right? Because mm. that is what a relationship is. You're making your own map. And I guarantee you, well, you better ask her, but I reckon I'm a better partner because I understand design, right? I know I'm a better father because I understand design. Because I understand that yeah. I'm gonna make mistakes you know, most days. You're prototyping <laughs> constantly. Uh, 100%. And it's like a huge, huge expectation and challenge on this. But I use my design skills all through my life. I wanted to put the design squiggle up. I think I've got, I don't know, if the, the listeners may not be able to see it, but I've got uh, the design squiggle. Can. I gave you one of those mugs. Yeah, there it And is. the design squiggle by, yeah, by Mr. Newman is this great example of what design feels like. It's it's a squiggle. Life is a squiggle. You're going in and out and up and down. You don't feel like you're going to pop out the end and you somehow do, right? And when I talk to the the, the young people when we're doing design, I say, we use the design squiggle because it helps. It's a great visual visual narrative and a visual representation of the design experience. But we're going to go, we have these stages we go through. We investigate, we imagine, we ideate, we iterate, we look for impact and we do that all, all of that. And this is what's really cool. This is Darren. We do all of that with an ethical lens. And that's the big difference for us. So a lot of people talk about design thinking, but for us, we worked out through, you know, iteration and through our experience in doing it with young people. The, The ethical component is a huge one. And we're coming into a world where I think, I believe that ethics is going to be the next 10 years you know, it's everything. It's our data. It's working with AI. It's machine learning. It's who has access to what. If we're not training our young people to be ethical and it provoking them to be ethical, I think we're doing ourselves and this planet a huge disservice. Um, so and- interesting that because I was listening to something the other day on uh, AI, obviously, um you know, chat GPT's blowing the internet up with, yeah. with AI. Blowing education up. Yep, in every <laughs> possible way. And, yeah. I mean, there's a lot more than chat GPT out there, but just it's had its yeah. moment in this massive thing. And I was listening to a guy talking about it, and he was saying it's really a race now because for the human race because if it can't teach 
chat chat gpt ethics and values yeah or, or not chat gpt sorry ai ethics and yep. values it will make us obsolete it will, it I agree. will become the judgment <laughs> that agree. does that so the fact and is- i don't think it'll do it like skynet i don't think it will take over but it will it will influence our ethics and our values and our politics and our bureaucracy yeah. and all our things so much that it will absolutely um, make our, our thinking obsolete. And this is why I have this great colleague, Bruce Fuda, who he really believed we used to have these great, not arguments, but these great point of yeah, yeah, you know, debate, discussion. He used yeah. to, he, he was really big on cognitive thinking. So he believed that we should teach kids coding and we should teach kids. And I absolutely, he's, I think he's absolutely right. But I was always, no, 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 we need to teach them design. We need to teach them systems thinking. We need to teach them the design thinking. Uh, and, and we'd have this kind of great, you know, great debate about which was more important. And I think it's probably the reality is it's probably both because we need young people yeah. to understand how technologies are built and we yes. need them to be able to build technologies. But I still maintain that the piece that we might be missing in our education system is this stuff, right? Yeah. You get most schools have a coding program right, where they're teaching young people to be coders, they're teaching them that cognitive thinking, mm-hmm. and that, mm-hmm. like, which is really important. Okay, and I think that uh, that understanding of uh, of how how programming and machining works is really really essential. But I say, and I said this out loud, probably it's part of the reason I did my study is because I said it out loud, and someone <laughs> said, "Where's the research?" You know, yeah. in those moments when you get called out publicly, <laughs> like, like I kind of got called out publicly, yeah, and someone said, "It's right yeah. here," <laughs> and I was like, "Oh man, I'm going to have to go and study this now." I le- legitimately yeah. started my or study hide. I got caught. Yeah, well, that's it. I decided I'd do some some research on it. But I believe that teaching design and teaching, you know, the idea to be ethical designers is as important, if not more important, because a lot of the really interesting coding that's happening now is being done by machines anyway. Like it's almost like AI is doing a lot of coding now. But we need to teach our young people and our educators need to engage with this. We're in this space and we talk to teachers about this and they're, of course, they're rightfully intimidated. But I used to say to my staff four or five years ago, if the kids can Google an answer to your question, is it really a valid question, right? Oh, I was oh. always striving. I know it's a challenge, but me and my team, we would strive for that ungoogleable question. We used to, that's a phrase that, that oh. exists and I didn't come up with it. Um, but that ungoogleable question it should sit in education because, and this is why it's been challenged, right? Because chat GPT will give young people the answers to the questions that teachers set that can be Googled. If you ask students questions that involve creativity, agility, ethics, iteration, and some of those more existential questions, AI will give you a response, but you can still tell it's AI. You know what I mean? And and it's not that it won't answer the question, but 99 out of 100 teachers can tell it's been created, right? By an yeah, AI. I, and yeah. I think this is the challenge for us as a society. And this is to all your audience out there. This is why, you know, get involved in this because the young people of today will set the parameters for all of us tomorrow around things like ethics and, and AI. And that's why we're so passionate about young people. And that's why we're so interested in, in education. You know, we have this mantra we want, we want to equip a million minds around the world with the ability mm. to think ethically. To think to, with with a design mindset, we're going to have to scale that up. We're hoping we have to scale that up to ten million. Yes. We're hoping we have to scale it up to hundred million. But yeah. right now, it's a million minds. You know, a million minds. Go with that. 
Because something that um, when I last caught up with you, we talked about was your avatars. And, and yes. a couple of times this has come back. I keep writing it on my pad here. And yeah. the, the, the fact that, let's just say, ethics and values, these pieces of it, which actually yeah. form people's behaviors, it actually yeah. tells us how they'll behave. Um, yeah. Go back to when I'm going to just frame this up a little. With schooling, mm-hmm. Um, it's a very sort of, uh, well, fluid, but uh, it's got set regulatory kind of boxes yes. that need to be fulfilled. And yeah. doing that, like my kids went to Montessori school, and yep. one of the things that I was thinking when you were talking earlier about, you know, how do you engage all the kids in the classroom, and then you're saying about the kid doing the flip backflip on the bicycle and you're using that in a maths class, and yeah. you're engaging, <laughs> I love it, I love it for all the reasons as well as the workplace health and safety. And I love that my principal caught me before I did it in front of the whole class. So I love oh, the that whole girl. school. I love it, Steve. Yeah, I, I would have done it. I would have, not only that, I was going to film it and put it out there. <laughs> so oh, um, <laughs> with us learning again, you know, like we've got these siloed subjects. Yes. However, in each of those subjects, we need design thinking to sit across them and maybe yeah. less so in maybe math and chemistry and things like that, where it's very formulaic. Uh, I don't know because... I contend know. against that, but yes, yeah, yeah. keep going. Yeah, yeah. maybe, yeah. I don't know. Like, But yeah. let's just say that it's got to sit across everything and then yeah. it's the passion that engages. So I can imagine you standing at the front of the room and if you were teaching me math, I would probably learn what you were trying to teach me because of the method you teach by and the engagement yep. because my mind connects so quickly with it. Um, and then there'll be the other kids who they, they don't have that same genre of mind and they may not connect as quickly. That thing of starting a task that might be, um, I don't know, like like you said like about the – girl doing the food you know the growing the design thinking growing food around the school there's a maths lesson in it there's a commerce lesson in it there's an um a science lesson in it there's in each piece of it there is a lesson that Mm. fits together in this thing it's just and i i found this in montessori was really fabulous it's just highlighting what that piece of that process is and this is the lesson at this time yeah. And so we it's the same, we're going to follow the same damn thing, but what we're going to do is we're going to teach you what that meant in math, what that meant in geography, or what that meant in science out of the same uh, set of actions, whether it's making a cake or whether it's making whatever. And I, I get really excited when I think that any process we're doing, we can break into all those pieces. The point of ethics, and I want you to talk about avatars for me, the point of ethics is, is it's like an environmental shift. Yep. It's a, it's <laughs> like it's like whether it's hot or whether it's cold and how will it react? Ethics as this overriding kind of point is the mm. values that sets us up for humankind to survive and for humankind to thrive more than survive. Um, yeah. When we get ethics right, things start to flow and people get comfortable. Their, their um, I want to say their nervous system drops away their fears and yes. they stop looking for what's wrong and start looking for what's possible. Maybe. And you're absolutely right. 
Yeah, and look, that's why the ethicist. <clears throat> so we have these things called avatars. I use them in the research, and um, I think Veronica and I, with the it's you know Project Yum, started talking about it back then. And it, yeah, like we we these things existed. And they're, they're like oh, we just did a LinkedIn post on it. So if you go to the Ed Institute LinkedIn, that if you want to see this, yep, um, for the we'll put it in there. the we'll put it we'll in put, your put it in the show notes. Yep. Um, yep. and I can I, I can share. But these these they're little characters. So if you imagine little characters, uh, almost little car- cartoon characters that we use with young people. So there's five of these avatars. It's the strategist, the maker, the explorer, the experimenter, and the ethicist, right? Now, what's interesting is we didn't have the ethicist originally. We had another mm. one called the pioneer. And this is a great example of no nomenclature. Words are important because I was working with um, some uh, Native American uh, people in the US and we were going through fascinating amazing work um again like check that work out like we got to work with uh, the Yurok tribe in designing stuff for their young people i won't that's a whole podcast on itself yeah wow. incredible young people redesigning the future of their tribe but really quickly the word pioneer had really strong connotations for them as you can imagine pioneer <laughs> is you know what, i mean like you probably and robber and uh, 100%. And, yeah. and this young person put their hand up and said what pioneer or like you could see it, it gave them a visceral reaction and so we kind of we, we're always learning too our methodology is mm-hmm. always adapting and changing mm-hmm. based on the young people we work with and we found that the ethicist came far more into the fore because these characters that we used or the avatars what they do is they help young people think like a strategist think like a maker and these are different stages of the design yeah. thinking process. We've got stages in design thinking. There's heaps of research out there on the stages we go through. There's different versions of it. We have our own version of the stages. But the beauty of the avatars is you can use that in any lesson, any subject, any opportunity in life. So an experimenter, their superpower, and we talk about superpowers with the kids, is they they can test ideas really quickly they have the ability to test, prototype, leave the bad, take the good, right? So the experimenter is really good at that. The explorer is inherently empathetic. They're great at looking at what they they, want to understand how a client thinks. And you would use the explorer lens all the time, all your your listeners would. Mm. So thinking empathetically, empathy is a word that's loaded, but essentially, Essentially, it's about thinking about what the person you're designing for actually needs or wants, right? And young, we don't teach young people how to do this. We teach them how to create things, but we don't teach them how to do it for a need necessarily. Um, and yeah, the strategist right. thinks about, you know, they think long-term. They're the mm-hmm. scenario planner. Mm-hmm. They're thinking, um, you know, over the next horizon, right, mm. the, the, the strategist. And they're thinking about a preferred future. So these characters, they've got different, they look different, they have different things, like they, you know, I, I did some work with six-year-olds, right? And if you want to see design thinking in action, work with, work, <laughs> work with early childhood. The speed at which they worked and the, the I guess, like the liquid just authenticity of them. The was, bound, was, no boundary. Oh, just disarming. Yeah. One of the things I talk about in my thesis is do we train that out of people in, through our education do. system? And I think we might just quietly. Um, mm-hmm. But so they would dress up like an explorer and that included a telescope. Mm-hmm. So when they needed to think like an explorer, when they were making up their new playground, they were designing a new playground. And I want to give a huge shout out to the teachers I worked with with that, but they would get the telescope and use the telescope to think like an explorer, right? If they wanted to think like an ethicist, we had some scales. It's a bit like you know, Debono's um, six thinking hats, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. Like, De Bono's great. Yeah. 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 De Bono's it's, that, it's that same thing of, 
um, change your like if you're a you know a coach of any kind, it's like change your physiology and it will change your exactly uh, psychology. And get them, yeah, and it became a touchstone a, for them. Yeah, if you put on a uniform, um, yeah. We all know how it works for parking meter people. Yeah. <laughs> you see that uniform. I tell you what, I, I, you're never clear a room as, as you will as quickly as if someone says the parking meters are out, the parking inspectors yeah, exactly. are out. Like people just grown adults jump up and hurdle tables. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, but the, we use this with adults too because originally it sounds glib and it sounds cute and it sounds, you know, I, I guess cutesy or whatever, but... Thinking like an experimenter and using those lenses yeah. across whatever you do is really important. And the Grattan Institute just did an article on the ABC, which I'm trying to write a response to. It is this fantastic article. They talked about whole school curriculum. Schools need to think as a whole school, not in the silos of subjects. Schools that educate really well do this. Mm. And one of our provocations is that design is a way to do that because design, you know, and you can use our avatars or use whatever you like, but think about you know, teaching inquiry skills. Inquiry skills is this great thing in education. It's really fashionable and it's really, sorry, fashionable sounds negative, but it's, it's, it's really, it's used a lot. Well, but how do you actually teach it? How do you actually teach inquiry? Yeah, well, go on, tell me that. Tell me how you teach inquiry skills because I'm sure yeah. most people have them. They just yes. don't know that they've got them and they're not honing them. Well, they probably learnt them through, I would, I contend they learned them through a version of the design experience by failing by iterating, by mm -hmm. prototyping, by going through that circle, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think one of the best ways to teach inquiry is through design thinking. I, I, I contend that. And I can, I, I, I've contended that through my research, that if we teach young people or anybody, adults, any designer who's listening, you learn how to inquire and how to respond, how to be agile, how to move, how to flow based on when you got it wrong. <laughs> most of the time <laughs> or if you got it you got it really wrong or really right well, okay. just, I just came back from skiing in Canada and you know prepping to go skiing in Canada I uh <laughs> I I was watching a lot of videos and you know people who get videoed skiing aren't doing ordinary things you know yeah. not if they've got enough likes to be found on Instagram <laughs> exactly right <laughs> I'm like um I, I, I've sort of taken myself through, you know, a few technicians who just show mm. you how to turn beautifully or do whatever. And then um, I find myself constantly watching people leaping, you know, 100 feet and mm. doing unbelievable feats. And, and doing that, I'm like, so I'm prepping myself for what? Because when yeah. I get myself one <laughs> foot off the ground, it feels like I'm a million miles in the air. Right. But just that whole thing of um, pushing my thinking out, pushing yes. my possibility out, watching how they're behaving. I'm not about to do it, trust me, but watching yep. how they're behaving and learning from them. And then they all learn by massive failure. That's right. They don't we, we land talking every education. shot, everyone, you know, they don't land them. They miss yep. most. Um, my, my, my colleague Ben talks about that zone of proximal development, and that's a really fancy way of saying pushing yourself that little bit further and mm -hmm. further, right? And that's a lot of what design is, is you might be working with a client, you might have to expand their zone of proximal development. So that's asking them to move that little bit further from what they're used to. And you as a designer, as an architect, and and and, and as a an innovator in this space, you understand that you can't push people too far too quick. 
And I understand this is an no, you, I work on the fact that you stretch the hell out of them, see where they bounce Absolutely. back to, and then start, you know, take them, take them further than you know they're comfortable. I certainly used exactly. to do this in the clothing days when I yes. was working there. I, I would drag our, our organization way forward, yeah. frighten yeah. the hell out of them. Yeah. And let them relax back. Yeah. Of course, they're already stretched, so they don't relax all the way back. And yep. then put something in front of them as the start of the story that was just behind where they'd relax back to. So they yep. felt that it was a, a, a first stepping stone. Yeah. Because we're designing exactly. things like when, when we're designing houses or oh, I don't do many commercial things, but if you're designing buildings, you, you're talking it's five years in the future. And then you talk about what what are the ethical values of that as well. Mm -hmm. But with clothing, clothing's a bit fun and fast and furious. I used to design a lot of clothing that people's lives relied on it. So we'd use yeah. a lot of Gore-Tex and it might be for competitive sailing or mountain climbing or whatever it was. These things are going to um, enhance the athlete as well as protect the athlete through their journey when they're in their mm -hmm. peak performance moments. And you go back to the a, the ethics of it and how important mm. is it that it's right and how important yes. is it that um, for them in that moment. Um, but also this whole thing of going, we, we stretch people to new ideas, we relax them back to give them a place to put their feet down so that they can come with us. And then those that will will be the early adopters. They will, yeah. and that's being pr pretty presumptuous that we're innovators. Um, maybe but it's a pedagogical just... technique. Like that's pedagogy, yeah, right? That's educational. What you're using is educational theory to help people expand, move, and I, I don't think it's presumptuous in the sense that by challenging people, that in itself is a value. Right. Mm. Like it doesn't matter if the idea is right or not necessarily. I mean, it does more, like you said, when you're, you know, designing for people's lives. I don't, I'm not taking that lightly, but in a classroom setting, it's okay to go wild. And we talk about that in design. Yeah. Right. Let people go wild. Because it's safe. 100%. We've created the scaffolds to yep. make it safe. So we say, you know, and that's, and I've made mistakes where I've let kids go too wild. <laughs> <as you can laughs> but but we create. Right. But we create the scaffolds around it, you know, so that they can go wild and creative and experiment. And but then in that act of doing that, almost inevitably, I believe it then that becomes a part of their internal toolkit. 100%. So the beauty of design thinking is not the product that the kids create. Or I, I would argue, not the necessarily the products that are being created out in the world. Yeah, it, the real it, it it's may the process. Be. It's the, the process. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, the repeatable, scalable. The best, one of the best moments of my career was I'd done a design thinking hack with some young people. Two weeks later, this 16 year old comes back and goes, Oh, sir, I've been using that design thinking stuff at work. And I was like, What? He said, Oh, I work at a cafe and we, we have to do a new menu for summer and no one knew how to do it. Um, so I helped them do a design thinking little, little experience. And he took those design thinking tools and he said, And we came up with a new menu as a staff. And I was just, Looking at him going, that's, Beautiful. and he said it very glibly. Beautiful. Yeah. Like very, oh, yeah, you know, we just did this thing for the week. And I was like, that is the best. And why that's the best is because you've taken something from a classroom, yeah. applied it to the real world, yeah. which is, let's be honest, the goal of education. And that, that really impassioned me to think, well, you know, we need to be providing tools for young people. Like we've been working 
with a, with a partner, Cognis, to develop an app for young people to do design thinking, right? Mm. Imagine if a kid could have an app, they could come up with a challenge or a solution, they come up with a challenge and opportunity, something goes wrong, and they can use this app to help scaffold their design thinking experience, well, unlike having to do it on paper on the back of menus. And so that, to me, is the real beauty of, of education. And I think for your listeners, too, it's the beauty of design. What love- you're doing with your clients is you're impacting them for the rest of their lives. Again, oh, you yeah. impacted me when yeah. you, because what the viewer, you know, full disclosure, I met Adrian because he helped us do our renovation, right? And I, I Googled and I found you because you just seemed interesting. I was curious about you. And I was like, <laughs> this designer seems interesting. Anyway, you, some of the things you, you, you provoked in me have impacted me professionally and personally. And that's a, that's a lasting impact. And through that, that's mm. impacted the people I work with and my company and the young people that I work with. So that ripple effect you've had as a designer has had, you know, unquantifiable impact. In, I, in, I think yeah. that most people um, don't realise. We, we look at life too immediately. And yeah. I had a, years ago, I had a, a coach who I said to him, he said to me, so why do you design houses? And I said, oh, look, you know, I was feeling really cynical that day. I said to him, <laughs> I said to him, look, so that a whole lot of, you know, people with a lot of money can have a whole lot of stuff that makes them look better. And <laughs> he he literally leant back in his chair and went, wow, you should stop, you know, kind of. Yeah. And yeah. I said, I said, well, that's not really true. I, I said, he said, can I reframe it? And I said, go for it. And uh, I must have been feeling really cynical because that was what I'd said. And I said, go for it. And he said, so you design a house for somebody that houses their family and because of the fact that it has a certain amount of flow and the way the light comes into it and the air comes into it and the way they move through it makes their life just a little bit better. They get to see that point that you chose, that view, without them realising that you chose that for them. And mm. in doing that, it it's something that gives them a spark in their mind every day. It just it gives them comfort, ease, and felt they feel like they've been thought about in this process. And they discover things that maybe you designed in or maybe just luckily happened from your design as well. They discover things and they move through this. And that means that in the mornings when they're getting ready to go to work and things are going on, one of the first parts is their environment is supporting them. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. And then he said, uh, you know, this conversation went on to, you know, they come home and when they come home, the proximity of, uh, you know, like right down to who parks on which side of the garage, what will that journey be, um, where the nearest bathroom might be, where the, when they get in or out of bed, which side of the bed would be best for them to be sleeping on, which side do they naturally sleep on, how would that room best support that, so you know, their spatial awareness is is taken care of and all these things that you get to play with. And it goes, so then their children live in that house and those, their children experience life at this level without mm. knowing it, without even realizing mm. it. And because they're experiencing it at this level, then they see what isn't right about it as well. And yeah. then they think about what could be better with it, but they're stepping off a higher platform. Yep. And I said, well, that's quite a different reframe, isn't it? Like it's, like, <laughs> it's a long way from where I started. 
and he but said, it's so true it's so true and i like I often like think, that yeah 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 my my sister hannah taught me so much about design she she did interior design and and she taught me so much about design within and and that framing of design aiding you in a place and mm. creating safety and creating security mm. and i guess that sure personalization yeah, yeah and all those things that were really important to her and i i guess that really impacted me and and i think that understanding that it actually makes a huge difference to people's lives like so the house i live in now that you help design makes a huge difference to me and how yeah. it sets me up for the day my wife yeah my daughter yeah. my daughter loves our house she loves yeah. the stairs she she loves the lights her favorite her favorite room i reckon is the bathroom because it's filled with light yeah loves and reflective surfaces and stuff loves like that it. as well and she's yeah. always loved it you and know it's got and, color. and i think yeah and I think that yeah. understanding, it certainly does have colour, but it all has different shades of, <laughs> of blues and greys, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. I wonder why it has that. <laughs> colour blown and my poor, I mean, my poor designer and my poor wife, and this was a great example of you being empathetic and understanding that Ian is going to struggle if you use too many colours he can't see. Yeah. Like if, if you'd used in my bathroom colours that I couldn't see properly, it would have made me uncomfortable, right? But you were able to work with, with Joe to well, come up yeah, with a Joe, wonderful palette yeah. of blues and greys. And it, you guys did So now not only it inspires me, you know, well, and that's what design it, is. It's inspiration. Again, it's, yeah, I think so. And, and, and design is supportive of other humans. And when it's supportive yes. of other humans... I mean, I, I look at like, you know, building design and architecture and those things, they are essentially um, creating shelter and sometimes for different purposes. Sometimes it might be for commerce or whatever. And other times it might be for, you know, family rest, relaxation, all those kind of things. Mm. Um, if the, the better as designers we can get those spaces right, for the environment and for the people that are in them. And the better we can produce that, then the better platform it gives them in their lives. You know, like... Um, Absolutely. Whether you're my sister or whether you're me, whoever it is, whatever the opportunities yeah. and challenges are, yeah, doing that creates opportunity and yeah. opportunities for health, well, you know. and With, with buildings... Buildings as well, they're very permanent things and they're yeah. very costly things. And, you know, so for, from the point of view, if they cost a lot and they're permanent or very permanent, mm. we have to be very mindful about what we produce um, Yeah, because they're going to be around for a while. They're going to and be that's ethics for me. Yeah. That's yeah, ethical. There you go. Yeah, that's if exactly. I was talking to my young people and they were building, designing a building, I'd say, where's your ethicist lens? Because this building might be here for longer than you are potentially. Yep. So you need to look at that through an ethical lens. And I think the ethical lens for me, and this is probably, I don't want to give you too much editing here, so maybe this is the last thing I say, but um, <laughs> the, the, the ethical lens for me also applies to the future. We talk about horizons and yes. my my father did scenario planning for his, he went from kindy teacher to a PhD in scenario planning, which is like, you know, the long-term forecast. Yeah, right. And I think I think you learn skills as a kindy teacher about how to plan for the future, I suspect. Um, <laughs> I, I joked with him once. I said, how do you go from kindy teacher to working with executives? He said, 
Exactly the same. It's the same. Keep keep, keep, same, keep them same. well fed and give them a nap in the afternoon. In your yeah, the same, um, same. Yeah. Like that idea of thinking 5, 10, 15 years ahead and for us in education, and this is for you, you know, if I could if I could finish with a provocation for your, for your audience, is looking at those horizons, we talk all about the challenges over those 5, 10, 15, 20-year horizons, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about AI, we talked about the environment, mm-hmm. all those things. I contend there's no better investment for anybody on this planet than to invest in the next generation to have the ability to think ethically, to think like an experimenter, to think like an explorer, a maker or a strategist, not to give them information, but to give them tools and lenses. And people often ask me, I'm not a teacher, how can I get involved, right? Everybody's been a student and I I suspect based on my anecdotal evidence that most of your audience didn't, maybe most is harsh, potentially a lot of your audience didn't have a great educational experience, right? And that's part of the reason why they do what they do, perhaps, or they, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. design creative people often don't have a great educational experience. And there's, there's research on that. But I would contend and I would provoke your audience and say, you everybody who's listening knows someone who's engaged with education you've either got children you've got yep. friends who have children yep. you've been through education you're gonna yep. have children. or you're in you education, education currently yeah you're educating your staff currently yep. um my provocation for you would be think deliberately about your pedagogy which is a fancy way of saying the way you teach those around you be deliberate about that be inspirational about that and look for opportunities to get involved in that now most schools on the planet, most of your audience are designers or, or involved a in the creative of, or, yeah. or, 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 or curious people. Most schools on this planet would welcome somebody with creativity in their through their front gates in some way, shape, or form. You know, be I love. There's nothing I loved more than seeing professionals come into classrooms. There's nothing better than that, right? Mm. Find ways to get involved. If that's not appropriate for you, which it might, not everyone can be a teacher, right? Not yeah. everyone can give eight hours a day to education, but I suspect we could all give an hour a month. And I would, that's my provocation for you is mm. look at ways you can. How can you do that? For the next yeah. generation. Yeah. And there's so many ways. Reach out to me if you want mm. suggestions for that. But, you know, they're my two provocations. Think in the work you do about how you can be a better educator because everybody needs the skill of pedagogy because we're all educators, whether we want to be or not, yeah. we're all educators. Yeah, even think just about, by example. Yeah, think about how you can be better. And if you need help with that, reach out to me and I can support in that. Um, and the second one is look at ways you can be involved in education because the reason why you and I are sitting here is what, one of two things happen in education. We inspire people mm-hmm. to follow and live after. Or we inspire people to rebel against. Right <laughs> now, I was inspired to, even though I was not a great student at all, and I've, if any of my teachers are listening, they'll absolutely affirm that. I like I yes, he fam- said it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said it out loud. He's now an educator, but he was the worst student ever. But I think all my teachers did- are dead, luckily. So yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they can't they but, can't come back to say how terrible I was. Yeah, but I was inspired by education. And a little bit of rebellion because I was like, well, there's got to be a better way to do this. I like, think that that's part of your, uh, you know, like your ethics is is that is absolutely you you could have taken your knowledge and put it in a million different or your thirst for knowledge and your yeah. ability to learn. You could have put it in a million different places on this planet, and you've given it back to educating others to 
get that processional value so that you know the 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 drop in the pond the ripples are going out and out and out because mm. also you have a passion for starting with young people um yeah. and and growing that out i have a a question for you which is going to be if you could only teach this is my last question if you could only mm. teach one more group of people mm. and you had you can put the time limit on it one more group of people your knowledge who would it be and what would you what would you be envisaging the outcome great question and extraordinarily difficult to answer <laughs> i because i follow Hopefully. yeah 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 <laughs> i yeah let's hope um I would say, and this is out there, but I would say, first of all, early childhood. Yeah. I think if I could have my time again, I would have trained in early childhood because I've seen firsthand. So what's early? What, give me a time uh, I'm frame. talking ages, um, let's say, four to seven. Yep. You know, that 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 foundation. Really formative. Prep, yep. kinder, yeah, that before they get to that, you know, mm -hmm. primary school, it would be that age group because – I, like I said, if I have my time again, I would do it because I have been just almost, I've been both inspired and demoralized by their ability. Like they're just, it's <laughs> like, it, it is, it's disconcerting how amazing they are. And I would say I would, I would, and we've started to do some work in the developing context and I would say early childhood in the developing world. And the reason I say oh, that right. is because I think there is a great equalizer coming with things like my provocation or my thought is that with things like artificial intelligence and and some of these things coming, the world, I think there's going to be a, 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 an increasing disparity between the haves and the have-nots, but I think that can also be equalised by some of these things. I believe you can teach these things without electricity. So my contention is that you can teach the skills I've been talking about today without needing equipment or apps or phones. That's that all that stuff's great. Just by being present. By being present, by being curious and being kind. Mm -hmm. I think you could teach the early childhood of the developing context the skills that would help them survive and thrive in the 21st and 22nd century. And I say that because they're going to be alive in the next century which yes. is pretty amazing when you think about it. So yeah. that would be the group I would love to. And I think, isn't to be honest, Ed Institute, that's who we collectively would love to work with the most. Don't get me wrong, we love the work we do, and I'm, yeah. you know, with all yeah. the clients we work with. But, you know, there's a, my there's colleague, a passion for that. It's, yeah, um, my colleague Ben did some work in Bougainville last year, which is another podcast again, and helping develop the ethical entrepreneurs of tomorrow over there. And that impacted our organisation in a way that, you know, is hard to quantify. And I'd go back to my own experience living on Christmas mm. Island and mm. the diversity mm. of, of things in that place, which, again, is another podcast probably. For, for all the American listeners, Google Christmas Island. And, yes. Uh, well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. not going to say where it is. It's, uh, but it's yeah, and Google its, its political but, context and what yeah, it's known exactly. for now. You'll, it's Have known a for, dig. <laughs> Yeah, it's known for two things. It's known for an incredibly biodiverse you know, flora and fauna and an amazingly challenging uh, <laughs> space with refugees. But I won't say any more. Google yeah. it. It's another yeah. podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's the group I'd love. And that's, I think that's the group the Ed Institute would love to work with the most. And 
that's kind of our that, that's kind of like our bubbling passion yeah you know and um because we think we think we could make a difference for that horizon those horizons with that well, group of people I, I think one of the things that struck me the most when you were just starting talking about it and you said so these people that will be alive in the next century yeah and, and mentally i'm trying to do the math like right quickly and i'm going they will they'll be 80 if they were born today kind of thing they'll be you know yeah. early 80s or late, exactly. late 70s early 80s in the next century and with our ability to live longer they yep. they're probably highly valid motivated working human beings contributing hugely to they the may be at the at top of point. the they may yeah. be at the top of the of, of society at that point right uh, exactly and you go whoa hold on a second i've been through the changeover in one century and i never yeah. thought about somebody saying it back when yeah um, i was born well this guy will probably see the next century yeah it's hugely inspiring for us well. it's hugely inspiring for us and it keeps us up at night it gives us sweaty palms but it also really <laughs> motivates us you know and as an organization and and i remember one of the great things was before we did that that date group with 220 year nines on valentine's day we're about to start the work and darren turns to me and ben this is they're the other two partners yep. of Ed institute and says i reckon in this room is a nobel laureate let's you treat it let's me. treat it as such go and i remember just kind of like you know uh, what but you know it, it intimidated me a little bit but it really that's how you've got to think with education and that's how we think at Ed Institute with education, whether it's with young people or, you know, current CEOs. That. You know, you can make an impact um, and ripple across those horizons um, and he through didn't education just, he didn't and through design. Set, yeah, it wasn't about him setting the tone for the room. It was about him no. setting the tone for you guys. For the colour, for us. Yeah. Because we're, exactly. we're, we're not going to be the problem. We're going to be the problem. Exactly. We're going to be the barrier. Right. If anyone's going to be the barrier for innovation in this room, it's going to be us. Exactly. You know? It's either step up or step away or give the space. It's all the context all put into one. Exactly. That you could get in the way of this person or these yeah. people, um, as well as you could be the person who lifts them to the next level that allows them the platform to jump from. I think Absolutely. it's I think as a you know, as a final kind of point that like if every time you were in any organizational structure, whether it be your workplace or whatever, is are you allowing that Nobel laureate to be and to come yeah. forward in that place and to be that genius? And do you know what? Yeah. Often, often, certainly in the world of um, design and architecture, and you, you made the point before about people um, – maybe having a struggle in the education in this area or a, not mm. a struggle, a, a disappointing education. They felt sure. that more could be done. Um, and I want to say I love teachers. That was, uh, I think that oh, yeah, no, of negativity to it. There's no, no one I advocate. I love, no, no one I love more than teachers. But I think yeah. sometimes our systems have not helped our teachers help the young people. I, I think there's, yeah, the boundaries and the, um, the fact that uh, teachers are also so often having to be the uh the uh, this is going to sound really wrong and i'm sure somebody will write in and tell me about it but be take on a parenting role absolutely um, that could have been better structured from a home space and uh, you know getting humans to take responsibility in a system that is trying to take responsibility for humans instead you know with That's nano right. states and all those kind of things 
I think that um, the, the blurred line between teacher and parent or teacher and controller um, For sure. is something that can get lost so easily and that our kids go there to learn, but we've got to get yeah. pass them the responsibility to be the learners. And yes, exactly. To go by to yeah, to go yeah. by sum it up. And I think the minute we can you inspire go, that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, talking to you is always super inspiring. And <laughs> it always makes me realize just how little I know and can formally look at and understand because you've got such a breadth of knowledge and a depth of knowledge not just of being a design thinker, but of having it in a line that it means that it can be broken into points and broken into structure. And so that it can be, because it can be broken into those things, it means that it gives the opportunity for it to be formalized and then carried forward rather than just randomly put out there. I love it, Ian. <clears throat> Oh, mate, it's, I love hanging out with you. It's super inspiring. And like I said, it's, yeah, I yeah. always, I just I'm, enjoy chatting I'm with very you. I'm ke- yeah, very keen to hear what the audience tells us. Yeah, please. Get in um, contact. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, we'll post best everything ways. that does that. We'll post it all on the Great. Uh, on I was going to say best ways LinkedIn um, yep. for us. I don't use socials much because I'm an ex-high school teacher. So <laughs> <laughs> I, spent years, I spent years not being able to use social media because the kids exactly. would, uh, don't stalk want them you. to know where you were. <laughs> That's right. But they don't use LinkedIn. They don't use yeah, LinkedIn. Yeah. So uh, I'm pretty safe there. Well, so probably it, some it of them do LinkedIn. now. Yeah, they probably yeah. do now, you know. It's not like you're yeah. 18 anymore. <laughs> oh, so true. So true. Uh, Mate, go and have an absolutely brilliant day and thank and you, you so well. much for your time. I will. Every day's got to be good. Otherwise, why are we doing it? Absolutely. Love your work. Thanks, mate. Cheers, buddy. Take care. Cheers. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, If it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow 
and fire at will.